Well, good morning, church. So glad to be here with you all this morning to share the word. Our text for this morning comes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us now. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every foot boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your son. We thank you that you didn't hold back anything from yourself, but you didn't just give us your gifts, you gave us all of yourself in the giving of your son. And we ask that as we hear from this word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see. Lord, we know that we can't have eyes to see on our own, but we ask for the miracle that you would grant us eyes of faith anew and afresh this morning. As we hear what you're saying to us through your word, that we would look to you through the eyes of faith and that we would see you as our peace this morning and that you would give us that abiding peace through faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So think in your mind of a scene in a movie, and there's many movies like this where there's a battle that's getting ready to start, and the troops are kind of lining up, and the heroes of the story are outnumbered, and they don't know if they're going to survive this war. But then the main character of the story rises up, and he gives this stirring speech to, to ready the troops and get ready for battle. Maybe you think of Braveheart when Mel Gibson's character gives the battle cry for freedom and he rides his horse along the line of men, stirring up them up for battle. I also think of Henry V's famous speech when he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. When I think of stirring speeches like this, I don't often think of Isaiah. But as I've sat with this passage this week, I actually think, I've been amazed at what Isaiah has to say, and I think that his message is kind of like that, but it's not about a physical battle, it's about a spiritual battle through the eyes of faith. What Isaiah is trying to do in this text is he's trying to stir up the troops in the midst of 
pretty intimidating oppression, but he's trying to say, don't look here, look here. Look up to God through the eyes of faith. Isaiah was a man who heard from God, and he was a man who was welcomed into the king's court. And he was bold enough to say things that the king wouldn't have wanted to hear. But he brings a message of truth and of hope and of peace when God's people didn't know if they were going to survive. So here Isaiah is like William Wallace. He's like Henry V, giving a rallying call to God's people not to take up physical arms into battle, but to fight the fight of faith. He's saying, maybe you feel backed up against a wall. Who are you gonna look to for your help? You can look with your physical eyes and you can see the armies advancing on the horizon. That's what the world wants us to do is the world says, look around with your physical eyes and try to figure out how you can fix your problems on your own. That's the natural response. But that response will end in destruction, Isaiah says. But the other option is looking to God, knowing that he is your true help, that if you look to him, you will live. But looking to him requires the eyes of faith, not natural eyes. And in fact, trusting in God often requires you to walk in a way that seems crazy to the world. The world will look at you and say, why are you acting like that? But that's Isaiah's main point of this passage, is that he's saying, don't look around you, look to God and he will be your peace. He will be your deliverer. So I wanna show you where I'm getting this from. So I'm gonna start out with kind of a 30,000 foot overview of Isaiah chapter seven through nine. We're gonna start with a little bit of review. So last week, Sean preached from Isaiah chapter seven. And he described how Assyria had partnered with the northern kingdom of Israel and they, had, they were coming down and they were trying to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And the king of Judah is a man named Ahaz. And God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to encourage him. And it's in that context that Isaiah delivers that amazing promise that this shall be a sign to you, a virgin shall be with child and she will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. So Isaiah is saying, don't trust in political alliances. Don't trust in what man can do. Trust in what God can do. He he says later on in chapter seven, verse nine, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I love that. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Your assurance can only come from the eyes of faith, not from your physical eyes. And then this message continues in Isaiah chapter eight. He says, don't be worried about these nations coming to attack you. Here's what he says in Isaiah 8.10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This is the power of Emmanuel, that if God is with us, the presence of our enemies gives us nothing to fear. If God is for you, then the problems that you see around you are not ultimate. The problems that you see around you are real, don't get me wrong, but they're not ultimate. Now, this is harder to believe than it is to actually say, so I can say that, 
And hear me on this, I'm preaching this right to myself as well. This is what God is challenging me to believe as well, that the problems that I see around me are not ultimate. They're real, but they're not ultimate. What is ultimate is that God is in heaven and he has sent his son to dwell with us and his son has given us his spirit to empower us to live the life that he has called us to live. That's what's ultimate. And so we need to hear Isaiah's words and to lift our eyes above what we see in the natural realm and understand that what's real, what's ultimate is the God who has supplied for us everything that we need. But if you're still kind of in that point where you're like, okay, I hear that, but I don't get it. I don't get how I can ever believe that. I think Isaiah felt that a little bit too. That I can imagine he's thinking, okay, God is saying I need to be firm in faith, but Lord, the armies are still coming. I can almost see them on the horizon. Do you have a plan for what I should do with these armies? So here's what I love about God is that God comes to Isaiah and he speaks to him personally before he goes again and goes back to King Ahaz and continues to stir the troops with another stirring speech to look to God with the eyes of faith. So if you look back in Isaiah chapter eight, verses 11 through 13, this is God speaking to Isaiah personally before he goes and delivers another message. He says, for the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me. I love that. God's strong hand upon Isaiah and warned me not to walk in the way of the people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. So don't think about the world like everyone else thinks about the world. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. What do you do when, the, when you fear all the things around you? God tells Isaiah, don't fear what they fear. Don't look at the army that's coming and be in dread of that. Rather, fix your eyes on the Lord of hosts. If there's anything you need to fear, it's the Lord of hosts. I love that name of God. Hosts means armies. So this is the Lord of hosts. Yahweh, the covenant God, has an army of angels at his command. He's saying, don't be consumed by fear and dread of little Assyria and little Israel. Compared to Yahweh of angel armies, they are small indeed. And here's the amazing thing. Yahweh of angel armies is with you. That's the promise of Emmanuel. So Isaiah himself needs that encouragement, and then God gives it to him. And then he's ready to speak to King Ahaz and to rally his people to rise up in faith. So this next section that I'm going to read for us, I know I'm reading a lot, but this is so good. This is what I think is Isaiah's Braveheart speech. It's his Henry V speech to stir up the people of God to lift up their eyes in faith. This is Isaiah 8, 16 through 22. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob 
and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs important in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I love what he says in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. He's saying, get your peace from God. Get your peace from the word. This is where the overflow of your peace comes from. It comes from God, not from your circumstances, not from what you see on the horizon coming at you. If you look to your physical surroundings, you will see distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. But if you look to the Lord through the word and the testimony, you will see the dawn. You will see the light. So now this brings us to Isaiah chapter 9, our text for this morning. Let's look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 again. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So this is an incredible promise of God's to to God's people that comes out of the overflow of the eyes of faith that Isaiah now has. In verse 3, he says that God has increased their joy, and now they rejoice before God like when there was an increase of harvest. It's like we had a bumper crop, and we're overflowing with grain and wine, and we have all this joy. That's the response that God's people get when God's light shines on them. And as the passage goes on, it focuses on the theme of peace. And it becomes apparent that it is the arrival of peace that brings this kind of joy. And this passage gives two main reasons for peace. So we're going to go over these one at a time, and that's how we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, is just looking at these two reasons of why we can have peace because of what God has done for us. Number one, we can have peace because weakness is the way. Weakness is the way. Verse 3 says that God has increased their joy. And then verse 4 begins with the word for. It tells us how God has increased their joy. And verse 4 says, 
For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the southern kingdom feels like they're under oppression by these nations who are getting ready to fight them. But God prophesies that God's going to set them free from that burden as he did on the day of Midian. So what's that about? What's the day of Midian? Well, if you were to search the word Midian on your Bible app or in a concordance, you would find that the battle of Midian happens in Judges 7 with Gideon, the judge Gideon. Do you remember that story? Well, the amazing thing is that it's in the same geographical location as Zebulun and Naphtali, where Isaiah is prophesying right now. And the Midianites were coming to fight against Israel, much like these armies are coming to fight against Judah. And Gideon raises up an army of 32,000 men. Pretty strong army. Listen to what God says about Gideon's army in Judges 7, verse 2. He says, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, my own hand has saved me. That's incredible, isn't it? Gideon raises up an army and God doesn't come and say, hey, great job, Gideon. I was kind of worried that this would be too much work for me, but you've done all the work for me, so now just go ahead and go into battle. God says, these people are too many because if you win, you might be deceived into thinking that it was your strength that gave you the victory. So then God whittles down Gideon's army. He says, anyone who's afraid is, can go home. And 22,000 of them go home. And so the army leaves an army of 10,000 people. And it's still too big. So then Gideon takes the army to the water. And 300 men, as they're drinking, they scoop up the water and drink it out of their hands. And the rest of them kneel down and just lap up the water from the surface. And then God says, okay, I'll just take those 300 men. Just those 300 men who scoop up the water and lap, lap it up like a dog. The Midianite army, we're told, was like sand at the seashore. But God used an army of 300 men to drive out the Midianites. Isaiah says, that's the kind of deliverance that God is going to give to his people. It's a deliverance to people who are weak so that they know when they're delivered, God is strong. So he's purposely putting them in a place where when he gives them the victory, the only explanation for that victory is that God was with them, that God was their joy, God was their peace. So we live in a therapeutic culture. If you look at the New York Times bestsellers list, you'll find that there's all kinds of books out there on how to find peace. You're going to find lots of books and YouTube videos promoting life hacks and ways to get through life where you can flourish and have the peace that you're longing for. If you look at the most popular apps, most of them promote moments of mindfulness and pursuits of inner peace. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. I think that we all could do better to take, learn how to take some deep breaths throughout our day. But don't let the message of our therapeutic culture become the gospel to you that the pursuit of external peace around you is not going to save you. Physical peace and prosperity is not God's main goal for you in this life. As a matter of fact, if you have too much of it, 
you can often get lulled to sleep in your faith. Following Jesus brings you peace. It brings you peace through the eyes of faith, but that doesn't mean that your circumstances will always be peaceful. As God did with Gideon, sometimes following Jesus means your circumstances get harder. He more than decimated Gideon's army for the purpose of showing God himself to be great, not our strength. Our circumstances get harder for a purpose so that when Jesus is your peace, you don't boast in the kingdom that you've created for yourself. Your only boast is in God. Ask yourself, what is God doing in your financial struggles or in your health decline or in your relational tension or your problems in the home or your problems at work or whatever it is for you? God is putting you in a place where he can give you peace and you can know for sure that it's supernatural peace. Your physical circumstances can't give you the peace that you need. The only way that you can have true peace is from God. So let your anxiety drive you to prayer. Let the disruption of your physical circumstances be the thing that focuses your eyes the most on the object of your faith, on God himself. So a while back, I read Anthony Doerr's excellent book, All the Light We Cannot See. And it's now a Netflix miniseries, and it tells the story of a port town in northern France during World War II. And the whole town is watching the Nazi advance on their city. And in the book, we meet a girl, a young girl named Marie, and Marie is blind. But Marie's father knows that one day, he's going to have to leave their house, leaving Marie by herself. And so he builds a wooden model of their city perfectly to scale. And day after day, he teaches Marie by running her hands along the wooden model, the ins and outs of their city. And that way she'll know how to get around when he's gone. Blind Marie becomes a beacon of peace in her little town even when it was threatened by war. She had a braille copy of a book that she reads on a radio station broadcasting peace. You can't see radio waves, but they broadcast light to those who are in darkness without peace. It takes a blind girl to proclaim that the most most of the true light in the world is the light that we cannot see. This is like the light that comes from God. You can't see it in your physical circumstances, but if you look through the eyes of faith, you will see the dawn of a light that cannot be put out by your circumstances. If physical circumstances don't bring you peace, then they can't take it away either. But if physical circumstances are what's bringing you peace, then when the tide turns, they can take it away. But God is the author of an unstoppable, inextinguishable peace that can never be taken away from you. Weakness is the way to the light. As we are weak, he is strong. It's our weakness that allows us to boast in God, not in ourselves. And that's the only boast that will not disappoint. Number two, reason number two for our peace To us, a child is born. This comes from verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is now the second time that Isaiah has talked about the coming of a special son who will bring deliverance to God's people. We heard that promise in Isaiah chapter 7. And if we only had that promise in Isaiah 7, we might not know enough about the identity of the son to get it completely clear. In Isaiah 7, he said, this will be the sign to you that a virgin shall be with child and you will call his name Emmanuel. And so probably the original audience and even we as the readers might think, okay, when this child is born, that means that God is going to be with us in a special way like he was in many other times throughout the story of the people of God. And Isaiah tells us that the government shall be upon his shoulder, that in contrast to the heavy burden that the, the other nations are putting on Israel as oppressors, that this son will bring freedom to the captives because he will take the government on his shoulder. He will take the burden off the oppressor and will take on the burden himself. This son is a royal son. He's destined to be king. But Judah knows what it's like to have a king and they know what it's like to have a bad king, like they're suffering under King Ahaz. But Isaiah describes the nature of a future king in a different way. He shows us that this king will not be like King Ahaz. And then he gives us four amazing names of what this king will be like. These names of this son reveal his identity. So we're gonna look at them one by one now. First, this son is called a wonderful counselor. So in, in the ancient world, kings often served as counselors. That if you had a dispute with someone, you would go stand before the king and he would give you counsel and that was how he brought peace to his land was offering counsel. And so this son is gonna be qualified as a royal counselor. And not only that, but he is a wonderful counselor. And this doesn't just mean that he got some five-star reviews on Yelp, but the word wonderful refers to the supernatural or the divine. That word wonderful is most often in the Old Testament used to describe God himself. So this royal counsel that the son will give will be divine counsel. It will come from God. Second, he's described as mighty God. And this title for this king would have been absolutely mind-blowing for Israel. That this son will not be a mere human. He will be God himself. This brings greater clarity to the name Emmanuel. That the coming of this promised son doesn't just mean that God's special presence will be with his people, but it means that God will be with his people precisely because God has come in human flesh. This was such a mind-blowing promise that it wouldn't come into full light until Jesus came and the prophets announced, this is the one we're talking about. Jesus is the true Emmanuel, God with us. And this is one of the main reasons why when the gospel writers sat down to tell the story of Jesus, they go to Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 all the time because they tell of the story and the promises of the coming of this son so well. Listen to how Matthew uses this passage 
from Isaiah 9 to tell the story of Jesus. This is in Matthew 4, verses 13 through 16. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. This is Jesus. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. I love how Matthew tells this story. So Jesus moves from Galilee to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And maybe you remember those names from Isaiah 9, verse 1. Those are the same names. And so Jesus has just set foot in the same place that Isaiah is talking about. Matthew is saying that there's something significant about the overlap of these promises. That when Isaiah was prophesying to this land, now God himself has set foot on this land. And something special is about to happen. Remember the movie National Treasure when they get the Declaration of Independence and they're running away from the bad guys and they finally get it to Independence Hall and they take it out of the tube and they unroll the Declaration and then Nicolas Cage's character pauses and his friends are like, what? He says, well, it's just that the last time this document was in this building, it was being signed. So he recognized this moment that now we're back here again and something significant is happening in time and space again. And that's what Matthew is doing. But there's three layers of significance. That this land, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, was the path that all the major nations took when they were fighting against each other. So Syria and Assyria and Babylon, they're all up here and Egypt's all down here. And when they're fighting against each other, they're all going through Zebulun and Naphtali. So it's war-torn constantly invaded by foreigners, constantly influenced by foreign culture. In short, why would God show up here? But this was where Gideon defeated the Midianites, boasting in God's greatness, not in his own. This was the land that Isaiah said the former time he brought into contempt, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way by the sea. When Jesus walks out onto that land, Matthew tells us, this is that moment. This was the beginning of how Jesus was to bring about his kingdom rule. This son called mighty God, and he has come to to the most desolate areas of your life. Maybe the not not physically war-torn desolate, but let me encourage you to think about your life. What are those dark corners of your life, those desolate corners of your life that have been so wounded or so hurt that you don't think God wants to even touch? That's where Jesus goes. That's what our God does. That's what our mighty God does is he goes to the weak and burdened and wounded and he brings life and light and peace. That's the joy that comes from this son. Have you let him into that place? Have you let him in to the darkness? Can you say of yourself, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light? Let him in this morning. Let every heart prepare him room. Third, 
he's called Everlasting Father. This might seem kind of confusing because it's talking about a son. So why is he called a father here? Well, in the ancient world, sometimes kings were referred to as fathers. And we have King Ahaz, who's kind of the bad example of a king. So it seems like Isaiah is kind of stretching to find all the other names to describe this royal son other than the name king. And so he describes him as an everlasting father, which means there will be no end to his reign. Israel and Judah had suffered the roller coaster of going up and down from good kings and bad kings. And there might be a good king, but after he dies, most of the time, a bad king takes his place. And then their nation suffers because of the reign of a bad king. But never again will God's people have to suffer because of the reign of a bad king. He is the everlasting father. He is the everlasting king. Of his reign, there will be no end. And fourth, he is called Prince of Peace. So the English word peace here doesn't always fully describe the Hebrew word shalom. That shalom refers to wholeness, or especially putting back together what has been divided. Shalom has to do with things being rightly ordered in your life. Things functioning according to their design. And here Isaiah continues to describe this Prince of Peace, what he'll bring about. Let's look again at Isaiah 9, verse 7. He says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So to our modern political ears, we might not like this idea of, of the increase of his government. But this doesn't mean big government like we think about it in our modern political thought. It means that this divine son will restore order. He will restore wholeness and purpose to his creation and to his people. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now into eternity. So the world tells us that the holiday season is supposed to be full of peace. But the way that all the holiday commercials depict it isn't accurately describing true biblical peace. Biblical peace doesn't mean that everything has to be perfect in your life. The house doesn't have to be clean all the time. Your family doesn't have to get along all the time. You don't have to have great vacations. Biblical peace that means in the face of the oncoming chaos, like Isaiah, you can speak out and say to the teaching, to the testimony, you can say, I will wait for the Lord. My hope is in him. The chaos that happened in the book, All the Light We Cannot See, happened because of a cursed diamond. If you touch the diamond with your bare hands, you will never die. But there's a catch. Everyone you love around you is going to die. So Marie, the blind girl, ends up in possession of the diamond. And her father has left her house and she's, her house is surrounded by Germans invading her town, but she chooses to surrender her own security for the sake of those she loves. She travels the path her father taught her down to the beach, 
and she chucks the diamond into the sea. That's what Jesus does for us. The Prince of Peace established peace by laying down his own life. Having an Instagram perfect Christmas doesn't give you lasting peace. Doing all the tips of mindfulness and life hacks won't give you lasting peace. But even when chaos is swirling all around you, Isaiah says you can have peace because the Prince of Peace has come into our lives and he is the one who makes all things new. You don't draw it out of yourself. You receive it from Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says in Philippians 4, 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace is active. It surpasses understanding, and it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So as we close, here's just one practical takeaway for how you can receive the Prince of Peace during this Advent season. Memorize Philippians 4, 7, the verse we just read, or some other verse that speaks to you about the peace of Jesus. And be like Isaiah and cry out to the teaching, to the testimony. When you see with your physical eyes the chaos that's swirling around you, and you'll see it multiple times a day, then go to the teaching, go to the testimony, go to the word and breathe out a prayer. God, would you guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus today? It might not make your physical circumstances change, but it will bring God's shalom into your life. Maybe this trial or this chaos is in your life so that when God gives you peace, when God gives you shalom, you can know that it came from God and not from you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the Prince of Peace. You've given us the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, that right now is actively guarding our hearts and our minds as we are in Christ Jesus. So Spirit, I pray for a miracle this morning. I pray that you would do the miracle of guarding our hearts from other affections, from going to other wells to try to drink, to get the sustenance that we need. Would you give us solid guardrails to keep us to the well that will never run dry, to the well that is supplied by the Prince of Peace? Would you guard our minds? Would you keep our minds from going to every other thing that promises peace during this Advent season? Would you focus our minds on Christ, on the object of our faith, for our peace, for our shalom, and for your glory? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.